Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Now, I've spent the last few episodes investigating poet laureates. Anyway, I've got that out of my system now. And this week, I thought I'd talk about, wait for it, John Keats. Yes, I know, it's a biggie. And um, slightly anxiety-making in that respect. Also, I'm doing uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn, which is uh, a greatest hit of the romantic poet John Keats. A bit like if I was doing an Elvis Presley podcast, and this week it's Suspicious Minds, you know, the big questions. Why does it have that fade and return towards the end? We'll never know. Was he cheating? Hmm. Yeah. So, um, Keats... Now, Keats is sort of a neighbour of mine in that Keats House, a building in Hampstead, North London, where the poet lived, is about five minutes' walk from where I am now sitting in my bedroom, hunched over a hot laptop. And it's worth a visit. It's got his complete Shakespeare. I love the idea that Keats is... Complete Shakespeare is there. I just like the books of the famous I get very excited about because you have an intimate relationship with a book. And I know he loved Shakespeare because of, uh, well, there's a poem about King Lear which establishes that. Also, his Paradise Lost is there. And the Shakespeare is closed, so you can't see Keats's marginalia, which is annoying that being uh, things that one writes in the margin in case you're getting confused but his paradise lost is open and you can see some underlinings which i find very exciting i'm a great fan of uh, marginalia and underlinings in all their manifestations and uh, he has underlined what about this as a classic thing for a romantic poet to underline especially Keats, who's sort of um, at the core of what we think of as a romantic poet. You sort of imagine him in chiffon, which I don't think is quite fair. I think he was like a a sort of a bit of a battler, bruiser kind of a guy, five feet tall, but with a sort of a SpongeBob SquarePants kind of a build. So probably not at all at home in Chiffon. Anyway, he is underlined in Book 10 of Paradise Lost, and I quote, On the ground outstretched he lay on the cold ground, and oft cursed his creation. Which is a reference to Adam in Book 10, but could easily be an outstretched romantic poet bemoaning his place in the world and generally suffering for his art good so i'm going to um begin i'm opening the book you can hear it ode on a grecian urn which was published in 1820 and probably written the year before 1819 i think is generally seen as keats golden year an ode by the way is a Greek word for a song. Okay, so in the first stanza, the speaker addresses a Grecian urn, a sort of a 
vase-like thing. If you ever go to museums, particularly the British Museum, you'll see a lot of um, Greek urns. I remember having a bit of a revelation with that, at suddenly being struck at how beautiful they are, having never been a big fan of pottery. Okay, so here is Keats, or rather the speaker of the poem, talking directly to the urn. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of silence and slow time, sylvan historian, who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. I'm going to break off there. You'll find that the stanzas, as we go through them, begin with four nice, neat, A, B, A, B rhymes. So the first and third lines rhyme and the second and fourth. After that, they get a bit more haphazard. And uh, we'll talk about why that might be as we get deeper into the poem. So, though still unravished bride of quietness. So, he's talking to the urn, remember, and unravished bride of quietness. Now, there are two possibilities here. At this stage, I think he's saying that you are unbroken. You have survived time. So, unravished in that manner and a bride of quietness because you say nothing unlike poetry you have no words there is also ladies on the urn we will see who seem to be in the process of being courted so it echoes although they, we haven't met them yet it echoes the uh, the unravished bride image thou still unravished bride so apparently in the first version of this there was a comma now i don't normally go that heavily into uh, punctuation as to be referring to commas that aren't there anymore but it, it was thou still comma unravished bride of quietness and of course the urn is still but in the end he decided that still unravished so Still unbroken, and if he's talking about the women on the urn, never consummated in love because you are frozen in time on this urn. Though foster child of silence and slow time, everything about the urn is silent. A foster child, I suppose because the person who made it is now dead the parent of the urn if you like but everyone from the, the the era that produced it is is dead though foster child of silence and slow time so we now have fostered it it is in our care silence and slow time it's just there it just is Sylvan historian, in other words, uh, a historian of the woods. Sylvan historian, who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme? And we'll come on to see that the urn is decorated with various flora and fauna. And the speaker humbly says, 
that you can express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. We'll see how that goes, that sort of deference to the urn. Some feel it continues throughout. I'm not so sure. The remaining six lines of stanza one go like this. What leaf fringe legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals or of both in Tempe or the dales of Arcady? What men or gods are these? What maidens loath? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? I know it's a gobful. So, what leaf fringed legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals or of both? So, it is a leaf fringed legend because it is something that is completely surrounded by trees and grass and plant life. That's the design of it. And we don't know what the story is, and that's what I think he means by legend here, is what's going on here. And the first thing he doesn't get is, is this deities or mortals, or of both? In Tempe or the Dales of Arcady. So is he in the Vale of Tempe, which is near Mount Olympus, which is like a gorge supposedly caught by the trident of Poseidon? You know, the kind of gorge. Or in Arcady, which is another place in Greece, which is a sort of paradise, perfect garden type pastoral area. So I don't know whether these people I can see. I don't know what the story is. I don't know what the leaf fringe legend is is about. I don't know whether it's gods or human beings or a mix of the two. And I don't know quite where it's taking place, somewhere in ancient Greece. What maidens loathe, he asks. Loathe as in loathe, reluctant. So these uh, coy women who are being courted, he doesn't know who they are. What mad pursuit. So what's, you know, what what is the dancing? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? We don't know. This is the first stanza. He hasn't told us about these things. But I think it's interesting that he begins with all these questions. Question Once he's established those first four lines, which are deferential to the urn, suddenly he's blasting out the questions. Deities, mortals, where is it in Greece? What's the mad pursuit? And I think it's good. I think it means, though he's not saying it here, that we are going to get this mix of reverence to the urn, but also questioning. And that seems to continue throughout the poem, I would suggest. So a lot of question marks at this point. It may seem odd to some listeners that um, he is addressing the urn directly, but obviously that's not necessarily odd in the world of poetry and certainly not in the world of Keats. Keats, in one of his letters, described himself as a chameleon poet in that whatever he was close to, he seemed to be 
absorbed into. So he said if there was a sparrow on his windowsill, he, if he focused and got into it, could actually be pecking at the gravel with that sparrow. Such was his level of empathy. He said he could empathise even with a, a billiard ball, an inanimate object. And he said he, he could feel the delight of roundness and that feeling of really burning up the bays when you've been well struck. So he was so empathetic that he could get into the soul, if you, if you like, of an inanimate object like a billiard ball or a Grecian urn. I used to, prospective partners, female partners, I would often slip in the question early on, could you knock a nail into a teddy bear's face? And if they felt they could do that without hesitation or resulting guilt, I decided that we could never be truly in love. So he has that ability. He said if he was in a room, his personality would become annihilated by those around him. So he would start taking on their opinions and their attitudes, even the way they spoke and moved. He was a fluid sort of a creature. And so it it's fits that he can talk to the urn as if it were a living intelligent creature. Okay, so stanza two. Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes play on, not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. Bear with me. This is quite a big statement. Bear in mind that we can see it seems now someone is piping on the urn. Uh, someone is playing a pipe on there. Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Why? Why is that, you ask me? Therefore, ye soft pipes play on, not to the sensual ear, so not to the ear of the senses, not a physical ear who hears actual noises, the eardrum picking up vibrations, not that, but, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit, ditties of no tone. So we are... In looking at this thing, we seem to feel this unheard music, these ditties of no tone, because it's contacting our spirit. In the 19th century, a critic called Walter Pater said that all art should aspire to the condition of music. And I think what he meant by that was that music had a universality. He was talking about classical, unworded music. It, it goes in deep. It sort of bypasses the brain almost. And um, 
all art should try and be like that, not too specific. It should be universal. It should be about feelings. It should cut past the intellect and go somewhere deeper than that. So the speaker of the poem is going further than Walter Pater. He's saying, no, don't have music because that means music you can interpret in your own way. You can put your own feelings into it. You can express yourself through your reaction to the music. He's saying, better still, no music at all. Then you're really free to imagine whatever is going on. There is no one dictating how you should respond to this music. There is nothing to hear, only to see and then to feel. The stanza continues and he's addressing now some of the characters on the urn. Fair youth beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never Never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal. Yet do not grieve, she cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss, forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. So fair youth, this is this uh, young man who's on the urn beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song. And I like the line break. The line break comes after leave and I've said to you many times that line breaks often give us two meanings for the price of one so you get the meaning that you're left with at the end of the line and then you get the meaning at the end of the sentence which comes a little later so fair youth beneath the trees thou canst not leave is where the line breaks and of course he cannot leave because he's in the well, I don't want to impose my own feelings on this, but I'll say he's trapped in the limbo of this eternal vase, this urn. But to continue to the end of the sentence, fair youth beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. So there's no autumn coming for those trees. Bold lover, Never, never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal, yet do not grieve. So, of course, you're never going to kiss her because you're frozen in time. But here's, here's the, the, the consolation. She cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss. So even though you're not going to kiss and hold and embrace her, she cannot fade, forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. So you'll always love her. That's one of the pluses, because you're frozen in time. And she'll always look great, because she's frozen in time. What we have to ask ourselves at this point is, how reliable is the narrator of this poem? Because the speaker is telling us, Oh, this is great, this fair youth. Yeah, he's never going to consummate the relationship, but in a way that's brilliant because he'll always be in love and she'll never age, so she'll always look fantastic. And these trees will always have leaves on them. But personally, as a reader at this point, I am yearning for autumn and ageing. 
I am unsettled by the idea of trees that are never bare. I'm okay with an evergreen, but you know what I mean. To give up nature's cycles, to give up natural ageing, the fact that the trees sort of have no rest in this, they have no shedding of their burden, and... Do you want to ache forever in this frozen love? And do you want your lover to remain forever young and not be as human beings should be? You decide. I think what the speaker consciously says and what he subconsciously communicates are quite different. I think Keats has deliberately given us a speaker we are meant to have our doubts about. And I know that speaker seems to celebrate a world where conservation is more important than than consummation, but it's a very springy world, isn't it? They want it to be spring forever. They want to be reaching for their love forever. It's all about green shoots and expectation. They don't want the summer. The summer's what you're really after, isn't it, in nature and in love. But if the summer comes, then inevitably the autumn and those empty boughs will come and then winter will come and that's life. But they are too afraid to live that and so uh, they are in this frozen world. That's what Frank thinks. I'm going straight into stanza three for another reason. And if you want to count the happies, that's fine. Ah, oh, happy, happy boughs that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu. And happy melodist, unwearied, Forever piping songs, forever new. Right. Are happy, happy boughs the branches of these trees that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu? So it'll always be spring. How marvellous. And happy melodist. We're again back to the, the piper. Unwearied. Forever piping songs, forever new. How lovely that nothing's deteriorating in this world. I'm going to go on to the next bit. More happy love, more happy, happy love. Forever warm and still to be enjoyed. Forever panting and forever young. All breathing human passion far above. I'll leave the last two lines for a bit. Right, so, our happy, happy boughs that cannot shed your leaves. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the previous stanza, he said, nor ever can these trees be bare. So he seems to be repeating himself. And happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs, forever new. In the previous stanza, thou canst not leave thy song. So he's repeated that as well. More happy love, more happy, happy love, forever warm and still to be enjoyed, which is ex exactly the same point as 
She cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss, forever will thou love, and she be fair. So, Keats is a good poet. Why would he be repeating himself like that in two consecutive stanzas? I think there's a sense of the revolving urn in this, of the picture going around and around, and the monotony of this frozen life. And so it does repeat and repeat. And so he's doing that to us. He's echoing that. So the stanza ends forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above. So you'll always be gagging for it. She'll always be young. As I say, we've already said this, and now he's saying it again or breathing human passion far above. So it's above breathing human passion, this art, this beautiful urn. It's better. That's what the speaker is saying. Is it what we're hearing? Well, and it ends. That leaves, this is about breathing human passion, that leaves a heart high, sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead, and a parching tongue. So real love is not that great compared to this frozen love. It leaves a heart high sorrowful, so you can be really broken-hearted and upset by high sorrowful being hyphenated. And cloyed, it's too much. It fills us to spilling. A burning forehead and a parching tongue, it makes you feel ill Real love is terrible compared to this perfect, frozen, unfulfilled love. That's what the speaker says. I would point out to you at this stage that an urn, a Grecian urn, was most often used for the ashes of the dead. And there is something a bit deceptive, something in denial, I suppose, about a seemingly immortal work of art, a depiction of a non-decaying, timeless world on the surface of a receptacle for death. And I think the reason that each ten-line stanza has four very neat A-B-A-B rhyming lines at the beginning and then six lines that are a bit more irregular, um, they repeat themselves Occasionally, one of them is just the only time that rhyme scheme appears. It's just a bit more freeform. It's almost like the battle between the classical mind and the romantic mind, the formal, polished, ordered classical mind, as suggested in the formally structured first four lines of the stanza, versus something more spontaneous, something more loose and free, as represented by the less regular final six lines of the stanza. And that's going on, I think, in the form of the poem, while the speaker keeps telling us how great this world is on the urn, but we don't really believe him, do we? And that's a clever piece of speakerdom by Keats, because we think you're saying this, mate, but you know what? You're not really 
convincing us. And then I'm just going to um, speed through the next stanza because we've all got lives to live. He sees a group of people in, involved in a religious ceremony. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leads thou that heifer lowing at the skies and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel is emptied of this folk, this pious morn? And, little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. So he sees a, 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 a march of a priest leading a, a sacrificial bull, a heifer, and followed by the congregation, if you like, who are these coming to the sacrifice? Another question marks are coming again. To what green altar, O mysterious priest? So where are you taking them? Leads though that heifer lowing at the skies and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed. So this, this ritual killing, where, where are you going with it? And now this bit, what little town by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel is emptied of this folk, this pious morn. So where's the place they all, they've all come from that they've left empty? And little town. So now he speaks to the town. I'm not sure we can even see that on the urn. And little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. So no one will go back to the town and say why it's so deserted, because we all went to take a heifer to be executed because you are stuck forever in the religious procession and when he says a little town thy streets forevermore it sounds the use of the word little sounds compassionate that little town that was a vibrant home to these people is now going to be left empty and little town thy streets forevermore will silent be now, you'll remember that early in the poem, the urn is described as thou foster child of silence and slow time. And I think then silence sounded like gravitas, something serious and profound. But now here, there's something tragic about this silent town. And little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be. That doesn't sound like a good thing anymore. It sounds like a desolate and sad thing. Stanza five. We've come to the last stanza. O attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou silent form dost tease us out of thought, has doth eternity. I need to stop there. I'll tell you why. Oh, Attic shape. Attic means um, of Athens, so fits in with the whole Greek thing. Fair attitude. I think it means its attitudes as in its sort of graceful posture, if you like. And also, I suppose, its general attitude of silent, timeless wisdom. 
with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought. So you've got these breed is a word for a braid, a sort of entwining braid. So it's it's a pun. I'm going to say it's a for all the series of this poem. He's done a pun on breed, B-R-E-E-D, as in a breed of men, and breed, B-R-E-D-E, a sort of a braid or a, a, an entwining, encircling design. And marble men and maidens, do they sound like great company to you? Cold. Cold and insensitive. With forest branches and the trodden weed, it's overwrought. Okay, though silent form. Again, that silent started off seemingly to mean wise. And after what happened to the little town, now just sounds desolate. Though silent form just tease us out of thought as doth eternity. You know, I talk about in these poems, the homework line, the line that really makes you think, ooh, what does that mean? And for me, this is it. Now, the closing lines of this poem are very, very famous and have been very, very debated since the poem was published. And I'm going to ask you guys to give them serious thought when we get there, because everyone's entitled to an opinion. But here... Thou silent form dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity. Cold pastoral. Now a pastoral, as you know, is often a poem, but it can be a, a, um, a visual thing. But it's about, it, it's often set in that Arcadia we spoke of before, in an almost paradise type place with shepherds playing their pipes and coy maidens and beautiful flora and fauna. A cold pastoral. Hmm. Okay, the homework line. Thou silent form dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity. I think it means that you, urn, dost tease us out of thought I think it means that you sort of trick us, tease or trick us out of reasoning and questioning because of your classical status. Like you are beyond questioning. We are supposed to bow down to you because the classics, ancient Greece, the Enlightenment had only happened shortly before this, maybe a hundred years or so. And... um, One of the things they talked about was the tyranny of the past, the way the past tells us how we should live now. And they fought against that. And I think we've got a bit of that here. Though silent form does tease us out of thought. And I think it's about sort of tricking us into just accepting that which we would normally think about question and apply reason to and he says as doth eternity and eternity if we equate that with religious belief also has a status a sort of timeless status which tricks us into 
worshipful acceptance. And he's already said very early on that he couldn't work out whether these were deities or mortals. They were indistinguishable to the speaker, which suggests that maybe the difference between gods and man is not so marked. The mysterious priest, what's he up to? He seems to be taking these people from what we're told is a peaceful citadel to some sort of ritual killing. Does he sound great? Is this kind of religion, any kind of religion, any kind of hallowed tradition, something that we should bow down to without questioning it, without wondering if it's as valid as we've been told it is? The speaker, I think, is in awe of this urn. But we, when we read between the lines, question that awe. And I think there's a growing discomfort as the poem goes on. OK, so we're gonna, we haven't even got to the big, the big words yet. But here goes. Now, silent form just teases out of thought as doth eternity. Now, the speaker, as we've said, I think is on the side of the urn but we are slightly rereading his thoughts and imposing our own doubts upon them. So when he says, though silent form just teases out of thought as doth eternity, I think he is saying that this is an appealing thing to do, that you are taking us beyond thought. You are something deeper than that, just like you were deeper than actual music in your silence. I think that's what he is saying. You are eternal, and that's why you have an effect on us the same as the thought of eternity. It's so big and so important and so silent and so timeless. It takes us to another plane. I think that's what he's saying. It's not what I'm hearing. What I'm hearing is... We should be questioning you, but our deference to the classical, to time, means that we aren't. Hmm. Get the next bit. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours. A friend to man to whom thou sayest, I'm saving it, I'm saving it. Now listen. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours. So there's going to be a whole new generation of misery, sadness, fear and upset. But you'll remain there, solid as an urn can be. A friend to man, he says. Again... I think he means it. I'm not sure. It sounds a bit indifferent to this uh, continuing role of misery to me, especially when we get these killer last two lines, which, as I say, have had a lot of stuff written about them. You must decide what they mean to you. But here goes. A friend to man to whom thou sayest, and I quote... Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth, 
and all ye need to know. Okay. Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty. That's all ye know on earth. And I think that on earth, perhaps the least discussed element of these two lines is because the urn speaks from on high to us mortals. Beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. Remember, this is off the back of this image of continuing human waste and woe that the urn coldly witnesses. And then this is the advice it gives to suffering humanity. Beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. Is it, urn? Is it all we need to know? To me, that is, and it has been set up by a lot of people as tremendous um, wisdom. To me, it seems phenomenally cold and uncaring. And it's coming from a world of no ageing, no suffering, not even deciduousness, which means um, when leaves fall off trees. How can that world understand and instruct our frail, crumbling, very fallible, awkward kisses, bomb notes and bare branches, flesh and blood life on this imperfect earth? In a way, this urn seems to be a contemplative uh, device. There are things... People use candles, people use statues of the Buddha, things that you stare at and you stare and as the speaker suggests, you go beyond thought, you go into eternity, you have the deeper thoughts. And I think the urn is that for the speaker and I think these two lines are left to us as a contemplative device. We think about them and we decide how they make us feel. There is one last um, Keatsian, I'm reaching for a bit of paper, one last Keatsian uh, theory which comes from his letters, and that is negative capability. And when he talks about negative capability, he says, being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. So he says the great artists like Shakespeare, for example, don't need an answer. They don't need some philosophical element to their work, which at the end teaches us what's important. It's happy to leave us hanging It's happy to just investigate the truth and then leave it to us to see what we make of it. I think negative capability, because the poet should negate his opinions, his beliefs, his natural demeanour, his self, I suppose, and search for a truth that might not be his truth, might not be a truth hampered by self. I'm going to say that. And so he leaves us to decide at the end, I think, what we should make of that uh, 
aphorism, beauty, truth, etc. Negative capability is a bit tricky. It made me think of a very popular book, which I guess came out in the 80s, about relationships called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And in that, it sort of says if a woman gets... Men and women are different, is the point. They might as well be from different planets. And um, this is how it goes. Woman has argument at work, goes home, tells her partner... The partner wants the problem solved if the partner is a man. Uh, so maybe uh, he might say, well, you could suggest a meeting with a mutual friend and then maybe you could discuss. And the woman says, shut up, Roger. Your job is merely to echo my rage and self-pity. Just be another me. Feel what I feel. And then put the kettle on. That, that and I think that is what, Keats means by negative capability that we shouldn't try to solve the problem as if we were writing a philosophical treatise when we write, when we create art and certainly when we write poetry. We should present what feels true and then have the guts to leave it, leave it there, leave it unresolved. I need, though, you guys... It's important to me that you go back to those final two lines. Beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. And I, and I'm pretty confident John Keats, want you to dwell on those two lines and not be tricked out of thought, but question, reason, reinterpret and see what you think thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode and you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio there'll be less poetry in that but more jokes see you next week